I'm sure you've all heard the phrase, uh, something to the effect of hockey is life and the rest is just details. Hunting is life. By the way, I love it that recently we've had multiple of our young guys come in, hunting gear and all. I mean, their faces have been painted black because they've been hunting in the morning, but yet they've come to worship God. So proud of them. Maybe they might put on a shirt that says, hunting is life, the rest is just details. I'd theologically quibble with them, but I'm glad they're here. If we were to have a Christian version, ours would say, the gospel is life and the rest is just details. But I want to pause for just a moment and assert two things. Number one is that that is the right phrase for us as Christians. The gospel is life and the rest is just details. Number two, I'm not sure if you know what I mean when I say that. Something we talk a lot about here at RGC is the centrality of the gospel in the Christian life. If you've been here for any significant period of time, you've heard me say something to the effect that the gospel is not just what saves you, it's what sanctifies you. Okay, maybe you haven't heard it. It's a little bit hard to respond in the sermon. I get it. You've all heard me say that, right? But what does that actually mean? How in the world does the message about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have anything to do with my anxiety, my anger, my calendar? I want to show you this morning. This is a different sermon than what is typical for us on a Sunday morning. If you're a visitor with us, our normal pattern is to preach through books of the Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians right now. We just finished the first major section, which runs through chapter 1 to chapter 4. Next week, we're going to pick up in chapter 5. So this is a different sermon for us than normal. It's a bit of a topical sermon. But it's also 1 Corinthians that spurred this sermon. Pride factiousness, selfishness, fixation on the flashy wisdom of the world. These are just a couple of problems amongst the Corinthian church. And in response to these problems, Paul says in 2.2, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Doesn't that strike you as odd? Odd, like you've got a broken leg and somebody comes in running with a band-aid to help. I think if we were the Corinthians, we'd be liable to look Paul in the eye and say, Paul, you've misread the situation. Paul, I need something more than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, I need something more than the gospel. I've got real problems. I need real answers. And I think Paul would come in and say, I know. And I have the answer. And it's the gospel. So brothers and sisters, and non-Christians, I hope to show you this morning how the gospel addresses not only your biggest needs, the big question in life, it addresses your every need. So let me just start by explaining this theologically. By the way, you could open up your bulletin and kind of see where we're going. I got a sermon outline for you there if that helps you follow along. So first of all, from a big perspective, according to Jesus, the whole Bible is about the gospel. That's Luke 24. 
After the resurrection, Jesus walks with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They are unbelievably bummed because they don't know he's risen. He takes them aside. He rebukes them for their inadequate understanding of the Old Testament. And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, which is shorthand for the whole Bible, the Old Testament, he shows them how all the Old Testament is all about his suffering, death, and resurrection, the gospel. Simply put, you could say the Old Testament anticipates Christ and the New Testament reveals Christ. A bit more detailed, you could say that the Old Testament anticipates Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, reveal Christ. Acts recount the birth of Christ's church. The New Testament letters explain and apply the person and work of Christ. And then Revelation is about the return of Christ. So the whole Bible is about Christ. And what he came to do. And if that's the case, then we would expect the gospel to be central and apostolic instruction in the church. And it turns out it is. So let's just see that from a granular, textual perspective. We've seen it from a big perspective, Luke 24. Let's just zoom in and get a granular textual perspective. In 115 of Romans, we see that Paul is eager to preach the gospel to Christians at Rome. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, which I mentioned it a minute ago, Paul decided to know nothing but Christ and him crucified when amongst the Christians at Corinth. In Acts 20.32, Paul leaves Ephesus. He gathers the elders of the church together. So if he were here, he would say, hey, BJ, Paul, Kevin, Tim, Brad, John, all of you, I want you to come here. He gathers the elders of the church together and he commits them to the gospel. And he says, this is the word that is able to build you up, to build you elders up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. We see it even in the way certain books are structured. Romans 1 through 11 is about all that God has done in Christ And Romans 12 and following are about how we respond. The imperatives of the Christian life, imperative means command, do this. The imperatives of the Christian life flow from and are intimately connected to what God has done, the indicative. Ephesians, same thing. Chapters 1 through 3, what God has done through Christ. Chapters 4 through 6, how we are to respond. I wonder if you realize that the Bible describes the gospel as the power of God. Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 1.18 say the gospel is the power of God. Listen to this quote from Milton Vincent. Quote, outside of heaven, the power of God and its highest density is found inside the gospel. This must be so, for the Bible twice describes the gospel as the power of God. Nothing else in all of Scripture is ever described in this way except for the person of Jesus Christ. Such a description indicates that the gospel is not only powerful, but that it is the ultimate entity in which God's power resides and does its greatest work, end quote. What's my point here? The gospel is something the Bible clearly applies to Christians. Paul preached the gospel to Christians. 
Paul entrusted the Ephesian elders to the gospel. That's what's able to build them up and give them an inheritance. The expansive practical instruction of Romans 12 through 16 and Ephesians 4 through 6 are nothing but massive therefores of the gospel. So just follow the logic. This means that the gospel is about more than just initial salvation. If it's only about initial salvation, these verses really don't make sense. Why would Paul preach to the Corinthian and Roman church the gospel? They're already saved. Because it's the power of God. Not just for initial salvation, being made right with God by faith, but for the progressive working out of our salvation as we are shaped and molded into the image of Christ. The gospel is the power of God for all of it. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't define the gospel. So let me just make sure we're all on the same sheet of music. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that mankind, all of us, have revolted against God and we are under his judgment. But the Bible also says that although God will judge us because he is a holy and just God, he also holds out forgiveness because he is a merciful and kind God. And the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to deal with our sin and to reconcile us to him. Jesus Christ has bore our sin on the cross. He bore the penalty of our sin. He bore the wrath of God for our sin. He canceled the debt of our sin. He died because death is what sin against a holy God deserves. And then he rose from the grave as he promised he would. And the good news of the gospel is that all that Christ accomplished on the cross is yours when you trust him. When you trust on the Lord Jesus Christ, hear this, your sin is paid for. When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer under God's wrath. When you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are no longer a rebel estranged from God. You are a reconciled son or daughter and a fellow heir of heaven with Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the power of God. And that message is not only what saves you, it's, it's the gas in your car that gets you all the way to heaven. Now let's tease that out. It's the gas in your car that gets you all the way to heaven, or if you've got a Tesla, it's the charge that lasts more than just 400 miles. How does that message apply to all the details of life? Here's how this is going to work. I've just grabbed some big categories in life and my goal is to show you how the gospel is central to all of them. This is not an exhaustive list. This is just an appetizer. And my hope is that this helps you begin cultivate, begin to cultivate some gospel fluency. It's a title of a book I read, Gospel Fluency. If you're, if you're fluent in language, you can use that language in any circumstance, right? Well, I want you to be fluent in the gospel. 
and understand how the gospel applies in any circumstance. The gospel is central in our hope. How so? The victory of Christ over the grave ensures our victory over the grave. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. The resurrection of Christ ensures our resurrection, which is to say the gospel grounds our hope. We are a hopeful people. When we look at the future, nothing can shake us. If you, brothers and sisters, appropriate what is yours in the gospel, then nothing, nothing will turn you sour or despondent because your future is more secure than the gold at Fort Knox. And there's more. Christians are hopeful not just about the future. Christians are actually hopeful about the present based on what? Election results, of course. No! Based on the gospel. Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Immediately prior to this text is a promise to believers that God works all things, all things, even tragic and hard things, to serve the spiritual well-being of his people. That is an amazing, mind-blowing promise. All things work together for my ultimate spiritual good. How can I believe that? Because of the gospel. If God gave you his son, won't he graciously give you all things? That makes you hopeful. Right here, right now. So the gospel makes us hopeful for the future. And the gospel makes us hopeful in the present. The gospel is central to our hope. The gospel is also central in how we think about the past. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead. There are two things the gospel does when it comes to our past. Number one, it assures us that all our sins, no matter how heinous or how long we lived in them, They are cast into the depths of the sea, Micah 7, 19. Praise God. Their sins and iniquities I will remember no more, Jeremiah 31, 34. Praise God. And do you know what this means? It means that the gospel keeps you from being defined by your past failures or being debilitated by your past failures. And number two, it tells us that we, what we are, we are by the grace of God. What do you have that you did not receive, Paul says in 1 Corinthians? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you had not received it? And so the gospel keeps us from being defined by our past success as well. It's not as though God is pleased with us because we've been good kids. It's not as though God is pleased with us because we've got on well in life. God is pleased with us because... He is pleased with Christ, and we are Christ's. And so the gospel is central to how we think about the past. It is healing balm for past sin. Maybe you need to apply it afresh right now. And it is protection 
from pride in past success. Maybe you need to apply the protection right now. The gospel is also central in our identity and in our self-understanding. Who am I? What, what makes me really me? Those are earth-shatteringly huge questions, aren't they? And the gospel tells you straight up the answer. You are a creature made in the image of God. You have rebelled against him, but he sent his son to redeem you. Those are ginormous, life-shaping answers. You are a creature made in the image of God. You are not your own God and thus free to create your own identity as though you are plastic and fluid. You are not just a clump of cells with feelings. You are not a biological accident of a one-night stand. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. But you and I, all of us, have rebelled against God. And this tells us, contra the spirit of the age, that we are not good little boys and girls that should never feel guilty as long as we're true to ourselves. This tells us that we are guilty and in the wrong. From day one, But God sent his son to redeem you. Do you see the implication of this? Your sin means you are more guilty than you know. But God sending Jesus means you're more precious than you know too. Amen. I wonder how many suicides would be prevented if these truths were known. I wonder how many would be freed from the darkness of depression if these truths were known. How freeing it is to know who you are really deep down is not something you have to discover. It has already been revealed. So the gospel is central to our self-understanding and our identity. It is also central in our fight against sin. It shapes our thoughts about sin. How do you think about sin? I hope you hate it. Because it cost Jesus his life. I've heard of folks who won't touch a drop of alcohol because it's destroyed the life of a loved one. Sin took your Savior's life. I hope you hate it. And the gospel also informs you that we have power over it. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin? And how did we die to sin? Through the gospel. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6.1. Later in the same chapter. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Grace there is more than you typically think. You typically think of grace as getting what you don't deserve, and that's true. But here Paul presents grace as more than that. It's it's a power that you're under. 
It's a power that, that overshadows you and influences you. And grace comes to you through the gospel and it promises you that you will not be dominated by sin. And so, brothers and sisters, I wonder how much you'd be helped the next time you're tempted to sin. I wonder how much you'd be helped if you just reminded yourself of the gospel truth. This sin that I'm thinking about committing cost my Savior his life. I have got to hate this. Just as Jesus died, so too have I. I have died to sin. This sin will not have dominion over me because I've died to sin. And this sin won't have dominion over me because I am under the power of grace. The law had no power to free me, but the gospel does. The gospel is central in how you understand your sin. Here's a biggie. Fear and anxiety. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is central to you dealing with fear and anxiety. Think with me for just a minute. The gospel frees you from the biggest source of fear and anxiety in all of life. And that's death. The gospel frees you from the fear of death because Christ's resurrection ensures your resurrection. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Doesn't it follow? Doesn't it follow that freedom from the greatest source of fear and anxiety should reach down and free you from lesser anxieties? Yes. Yes. Especially when coupled with two other promises both given in the gospel, by the way. The promise in Matthew twenty-eight twenty that Jesus will be with you until the end. And the promise in Romans eight thirty-one that if God gave Jesus for you, won't he give you everything you need? And so next time you're tempted to drown your anxiety with wine, go on a shopping spree to get your mind off, Or watch Netflix for hours because you're afraid you won't fall asleep if you don't. Instead of those things, remind yourselves of the truths bound up in the gospel. Jesus has risen from the grave, thereby freeing me from my greatest anxiety. Jesus has promised to be with me. And God has given me Jesus. Will not he give me whatever I need in this moment, in this challenge? Be still, heart. Be still through the gospel, heart. Preach the gospel to yourself. How about your anger? How about your anger and your short fuse? I think key to understanding anger is an understanding of justice. So when we're angry, what do we want? Justice. We actually want revenge, but we call it justice. No, we do want justice sometimes. We really do. We, we want things that are wrong to be made right. I read a text from one person mad at another, and it said this, quote, Don't you think you deserve something for all you've done to me? End quote. Now, most of the time, we're not as bald-faced about that as this, but there it is. We've got that impulse. 
I've been wronged, or I think I've been wronged, and you need to pay. The gospel deals with that. The gospel says justice will come. For those who are in Christ, it has already been paid by Jesus. God has punished that sin by laying it on Jesus. And for those outside of Christ, God will punish that day, one day, when he returns. Second Thessalonians 1 says, Jesus will inflict judge- vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel. And so no sin goes unpunished. And listen. If you've been sinned against terribly, and I know some of you have, this truth is the only thing that will free you from that angerness, from that anger, and from that bitterness that gnaws at you. This truth is the only thing that will free you from that hunger to seek your own justice. This truth is the only thing that is going to keep you from becoming increasingly an unkind, jaded, depressed, closed off person who writes off people and the world. They're all going to hell, you might say. Listen, there is much that is offensive and hurtful and hateful in the world, but God will make it all right, and we know it because of the gospel. So let that truth sink down, brothers and sisters. Let it sink down even into lesser offenses. Let it sink down into lesser things that tend to prick you and make you angry and short-tempered and cranky. There is no wrong or injustice that will not be made right. Praise God. Stop being so angry. I tell you that. I tell myself that too. Don't worry. How about the church? The gospel is central to how we think about the church. What kind of place should the church have in our lives? The gospel tells us that the church should be at the absolute center of our lives because the church is at the center of Jesus' life. He came to earth for her. He lived for her. He died for her. He intercedes for her. So this tells us church, church can't be a co-curricular activity that we tack on to the full schedule of our lives. No, church has got to be the primary course of study that we've got to invest our energies into if we would graduate the Christian life. It's not co-curricular. It is the curriculum. And the gospel tells us how we should think about the church as well. So many think about the church like it's spiritual shopping. We go as consumers. So it's about us. It's about our interests. It's about a community that's satisfying to us and And we participate to the degree that it it suits us and our needs and our wants and our expectations and our checklists of things that we're looking for. But the gospel tells us that we should approach church fundamentally different. Because Jesus Christ came not to be served, but to serve. His orientation was not consumeristic. It was others-oriented. 
Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to recount Jesus' incarnation, life, death, for the well-being of the church. That's why we join the church instead of just perpetually attending. That's why the church is more than just coming on Sunday morning. That's why we care about discipling each other. That's why we pray for one another. That's why we inconvenience ourselves for one another. That's why we call if you're gone a few Sundays in a row to make sure you're doing okay in the Lord. That's why we'll confront one another about sin. That's why we'll come to home group, even though it's been a long day and it'll be an early and long day tomorrow. We do all of this because Jesus lived and breathed and died and rose for the good of his brethren and we want to do the same. Amen? So the gospel is central to how we think about the church. The gospel is also central when it comes to our expectations about life. The gospel informs us that life will not be easy. It was not easy for our Savior. It will not be easy for us. Following Jesus isn't just believing. It is taking up your cross and walking in the way he walked. A way of suffering before glory. A way of the cross before the crown. A way of denying ourselves now but gaining a reward in heaven. A way that is costly but lovely. Gospel informs us that life will not be easy. But the gospel also informs us that life is just temporary. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said. The hardness of life is tempered by its temporariness. And this keeps us from giving ourselves to the world or to the things of the world. This keeps us from discouragement and the hardness of the world. We are sojourners. We are on the move. The good stuff comes later and we can wait for it. And the gospel also informs us that life is transformative. Just as our Savior learned obedience through what he suffered, so too will we. Brothers and sisters, you are likely to meet with all sorts of hardships. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. But what I want to say is that all of them, every single one of them, is filled with meaning and purpose. Your cancer has purpose. Your spouse's unfaithfulness has purpose. Your relationship that try as you might can't seem to be mended has purpose. In all of these things, God is working in you, chipping off all that which does not look like his son and all of that which does not long for heaven as your home. He is chipping it away and forming you more and more, molding you more and more to look like his son. Life is transformative. 
Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. So too will you. The gospel is also central in our contentment. Not that, I have spe- not that I am speaking in terms of being in need, for I have learned that whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any way, in any circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here we see that Paul learned contentment. Praise God, encouraging news for us. It's not something that we come out of the womb with. We learn it, so if you're not there Join the Apostle Paul and me in the process of learning it. That's great. He learned contentment. What did he learn? That it comes through Christ. How does it come through Christ? In the gospel. In the gospel, our greatest need has been met. That is the greatest strength and buoy to contentment of anything you could possibly imagine. How can you be content? In the gospel, your greatest need has been met. And through the gospel, Christ gives you himself and he is enough for every circumstance. So brothers and sisters, next time you are struggling with contentment, please don't just say, need to be content, need to be content, need to be content. It'd be like a song that we sing on Sunday morning. Don't just say, I need to be content. Meditate on the gospel. On the fact that your greatest need has been provided for through Jesus' blood, his resurrection, and your union with him by faith. And then meditate on the riches that are yours in Christ. He will provide for you until you reach the eternal shore. And then heaven is yours. And until then, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. That's how you will learn contentment. Through meditating and preaching the gospel to yourself. The gospel is central also in how we approach the mundane. I think about the mundane like work and parenting, neither of which are really mundane, uh, but you know what I'm saying. When you're fixing the broken machine at work, you machinists, or when you're changing the third blowout of the day, you moms or dads, it doesn't feel very meaningful, right? But it is meaningful. Work and parenting are often ground zero for the working out of gospel maturity in our lives. Think about this. We mature in Christ by working through hard things in real and normal life. For most of us, those hard things are going to come in the context of the daily grind of work and parenting and kids, I'm sorry, school. Therefore, the dirty diaper is meaningful. Therefore, studying for the quiz in Algebra 2 is meaningful. Therefore, the broken machine or the meeting gone bad is meaningful because God is shaping you and molding you by the cross in this mundane thing. Praise God. Everything's charged with meaning. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him, Colossians 3.17. Praise God. Are you still with me? There's a lot here. The gospel also informs our basic intent to go hard after Christ. The gospel is central to a active Passionate pursuit of Jesus. 
When you become a Christian, it's not as though you're like, great, that's done. Now what do we do? Let's go out to dinner. No, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The fact that he's been grabbed by Christ makes him want to grab Christ all the more. Philippians 3.12 The gospel calls us to a forward progress in Jesus. The gospel explicitly calls us to keep believing. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast the word I preached to you. 1 Corinthians 15.1 and 2. So you pursue Christ, you must keep believing the gospel, and the gospel itself is fuel for the fire of a hot pursuit of Christ in life. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's the gospel. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. Yet it was not I, but the grace of God with me. And the gospel also says that the only way we reign with him is if we suffer with him. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. At this point, I want to warn any of you here who are perpetually lukewarm, you are in danger. You are in tremendous danger. The gospel has categories for struggle. It does not have categories for being perpetually always stuck and not moving forward. If that is you, you are in danger. You need to press on to make it your own because he has made you his own. You need to keep believing. You need to keep fighting. There's no category for just a lukewarm, stuck Christian perpetually. Be afraid if you are not growing year after year after year. Be afraid if your affection for Christ is way down here. Be afraid if you have no desire to sing praises to God and the only reason you're here is because you don't want to hear from me. Be afraid. I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I am saying you are in grave spiritual danger. The gospel is also central to our relationships. What are relationships really for? I think in our flesh, we, we want our relationships to be about me. I thought when I got buried, that was going to be the greatest thing ever. And it is. But... <laughs> but you know what I found out? I found out that it takes a lot of work. And, and the reason it really is sweet is because God in his grace got a hold of me and he got a hold of her early and, and he helped us to see that really the whole thing, the whole thing needs to be summed up like this. My job is to seek to do her spiritual good and her job is to seek to do me spiritual good. And our love for Jesus should translate into love for each other and the marriage relationship should be the pattern for not intimately, not awkwardly, the way we relate to each other in the church and with our friends as well. 
What is the goal? What is the purpose? What is behind our relationships? The well-being of those we are with. Their spiritual flourishing. That's why we want to preach the gospel. That's why we want to disciple each other. Because the gospel tells us that the way we relate to one another is to the end that we flourish. And so the gospel informs how we think about all of our relationships and it's one that's not me-oriented. It's how can I serve you? I know that's hard. I know some of you are in marriages where your spouse isn't in Christ. That's hard. I know some of you are in marriages where there's just a tremendous difference between the spiritual maturity of the partners. That's hard. I know some of you are in friendships and relationships and working relationships and parent-child relationships that are hard. I want to encourage you to continue to appropriate the gospel. To think my main responsibility is to do what I can for the spiritual well-being of this person. And I want to continue to do that in a happy hearted way. The gospel also is central to life's agenda. So like what what's on life's agenda for you? Retire like this, go on these trips, buy a trailer, move to North Carolina, do 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 do. Those things may all be fine. But you know what should be on life's agenda top is the Great Commission. To make disciples by teaching them all that Jesus commanded. And that, friends, should translate into your calendar. How does the gospel relate to your calendar? Well, just like this. What's, what's the priority? And are the events on my calendar in line with my priority to make disciples of all the nations? The gospel should translate into how you spend your money. The gospel should translate into how you spend your time. The gospel should translate into where you invest your energies. The overall purpose of our lives is to make disciples. Are we engaged in that activity? Are you pricked like Chris that you weren't ministering how you should in the opportunity that you have? The gospel informs us that we are to be about the business of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our ultimate agenda. Now, this isn't all that could be said. But it's late, and you're hot, or at least I am. And my goal for this morning is to help you get some categories in your mind to make connections and to see that the gospel is not just what saves you. It is the gas in your car that helps you get all the way to heaven. Have you been helped in that? I hope you have, and I want to encourage you to go home and to think about different things and to think, how does the gospel apply to this? How does the gospel apply to that? And I just want you to to brainstorm and call me. Call your home group leader. Call one of the elders and ask us, how does the gospel apply to this? How we would be helped as a church if we continued to grow in our gospel fluency.
May it be so. For our well-being and for the glory of Christ, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gospel, which is the power of God. And we ask that its power continue to work mightily in us, that we are transformed. And we await the day when that transformation will be complete and we stand before you in joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.